Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series at the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Welcome to this new episode of FEPS Talks. I'm David Rinaldi, Director of Studies and Policy at the Foundation for European Progressive Studies, FEPS, and I'm thrilled to have with us today Professor Dr. Thorsten Schulten from BSI, the Institute of Economic and Social Research of the Hans Blocker Stiftung. You're also actually honorary professor at uh, Tübingen University and a renowned expert on the topic of the episode, employment. And working conditions. Thanks for joining us, Professor Schulten. Thanks for having me. And the very first question in this uh, changing world is actually about your expectations of somehow what we will see in the labor markets in the upcoming months, if not next year. And now that we are somehow phasing out of one of the biggest crises that we had, of course, uh, a health crisis, but, but also a socioeconomic and employment crisis. Is it over or we still have to face big employment matters, problems? So you, you start already with a very big question and the, and the big picture. I mean, first of all, I think we have to keep in mind that giving exact the deep crisis which we are faced by and the push down in employment growth and so on. We can see that so far, I think we managed quite uh, relatively well. And we can see that especially these systems in Europe, which have strong welfare state, which have a strong labor market policy, which which have in particular the the instruments of short-time work or, or whatever you call it, so similar instruments, which really help us to keep employment. And we see it in in Germany, but we see it in many other countries as well, that where you have quite functioning labor market regulation and where you have these instruments, I think, compared to the the decline in in the growth rates, employment did relatively well. So we have to say that. That, of course, does not mean that we see some significant problems currently, and then we also see significant differences among the European state. But I'm also not too pessimistic uh, regarding the EU policy. I mean, what we see in the EU policy in that sense, I mean, we have been managed to develop new programs, which probably nobody would expect that we could have these kind of programs before the crisis. So the crisis really functions also as a kind of innovator to really to improve uh, the policy. And it's not enough, and we, we want to, uh, to ask for more initiatives also at the EU level. I think that the direction is quite fine. And therefore, we are regarding the future. Of course, there are some major challenges. One big challenge is, of course, uh, the whole question of the transformation of the industry. However, this is, I think, one of the big debates. Many European countries depend, still depend, and the world still depending on classical industry and we all all know that a big transformation is needed here to make it more sustainable to reach the climate climate targets and so on i mean there's no alternative in that way that we have to reach them and we have to change the industry and of course it's also here clear and the, the crisis showed again this is nothing which we can just leave to the market as, as the neoliberal or the more liberal economists say but where we really need an active state to be involved to arrange this transformation in a manner that it's at the end really people can keep their job or can find new job and that employment is uh, somewhat stable so but 
as I said, I think uh, there were a lot of learning experiences during the crisis, and I hope that we can keep these uh, new approaches. I think that that is um, a quite a good assessment of what uh, has happened as well. Somehow the public sector stepped in in a crucial moment, both at national and European level. If I perceive from your tone, uh, there is a sort of optimism that this will remain alive as a type of sense of duty of the public sector and attention for the question of, 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 of labor. But my feeling is that uh, will this fail the way once the emergency is of course it's out. also a little bit uh, not only my my expectation but also a little bit my hope of course and you are absolutely right all these policies are always very much contested of course a struggle between uh, different uh, forces and there are of course again also the the the, the more old-fashioned forces which say okay now we had this big state involvement in the economy and in saving the economy during the covid crisis but now we have to to bring it back and for instance uh, the, all the debates about the debt breaks and and these kind of things are an example for this that they will say okay now we are really facing significant debts and now we have to bring it down because these are the, the rules we established in the european union where i would say no i mean we need in order to make our economy fit for the challenges uh, coming from the climate change and so on i mean we need public investment. I mean, that's a crucial thing. And everything, uh, I mean, the market is not solving these problems. So, and we probably would also need more public investment. And then, of course, the question is how to finance it, to what extent we can, we are need to go into debt and of course also another question is what is a fair distribution in terms of uh, tax policy and, and the share of the burdens so is it really are we really able to manage to bring also the more wealthiest uh, in, in paying for this transformation and not only the mass of, of the people so and yes as I said, it's a battleground, but uh, maybe you, uh, I'm I'm a German, and uh, you, as you know, at the moment we have the German election, and for a long time it seemed that the, the conservative wing will win the game, and now we see quite recently a, a very dramatic change also in in the in the public opinion that the public really recognize uh, how important it was to have a strong state and a strong also social welfare system that we can go through this crisis. And the people have recognized that. And that's probably the, what I got some optimism from, that that these, these experiences will keep in the mind of the people and that they won't go back to the old days of neoliberalism, so to speak. Thank you. Among uh, the several topics that you mastered that and you have done research on, um, certainly the minimum wage policy as one way for the state to intervene in securing uh, adequate life uh, living standards for the European people is one of the big policies. And I would like actually to mention the report that you published a few months ago, the WSI Minimum Wage Report 2021, Is Europe in Route to Adequate Minimum Wages, uh, which is a, a very good publication that provides a very good account of the minimum wage policies around Europe. Before going to this specific policy area, I would like perhaps you to try to explain or comment a phenomenon that uh, we've seen in this post-pandemic world in which companies came in the big news in the US. Uh, it's very true in Italy and a few other European countries. I don't know how acute it is in Germany of companies that think 
that uh, with the low wage they can get people easily to work because there's you know there's need to work many people have been left without employment but in the end workers for the first time they refuse uh, somehow right. certain conditions and companies came out like complaining that they cannot find workers so first time they see of course a mismatch between demand and office is always there but now this is uh, somehow impacting the wage level any explanation from your expertise that can help us understanding this uh, phenomenon uh, can be helpful i mean first of all i would not say that it's for the first time that workers resist i mean works to a certain extent always have to resist and try to get higher wages but you are right in in a sense that we saw probably since the 1990s we saw a growing dispersion polarization in the wage structure and we saw an increase of low wage sectors uh, especially in the US but also in many European countries for example in my own country Germany has one of the largest low wage sector in Europe and this has to do of course with uh, with the erosion of traditional institutions of collective bargaining of labor law it has also to do with the change of power relations and what we see uh, during these crises is how important many workers are essential or crucial workers or whatsoever which are really essential in keeping uh, the company and keeping the society going during that crisis which are at a very low wage level often only the minimum wage or sometimes even below the minimum wage and this is a big phenomenon and i think there is now really a growing awareness that these people are so essential they're doing so essential work and we recognize that during the crisis and it's simply not fair that they have that low standard of wages where often the wage is simply not it's just poverty wages so it's not sufficient for the people to make their their needs they often are relying on additional payments by the states so there's additional social contributions and they can't even if they are doing a normal full-time work working 40 hours a week or even more at the end they don't have enough money really to just to spend for their basic needs and and that's it's now recognized and i think there and of course what's also in favor for workers that we see in many societies that we this has to do with long term trends demographic shifts and so on yeah that the, the power relations is shifting a little bit again in favor of labor because we have labor shortage in in many many segments of the, of the labor market uh, take for instance the whole care sector that's probably the most uh, typical and care is again a very ba- badly paid profession but now we see in many countries that this is shifting i i hope that they will not accept unfair conditions because that's the only way in which we can have well, we can demand and obtain the decent wage uh, seen is in the, i've seen in the uk in some sector is also clear that uh, wages are going up particularly for qualified uh, certain qualified qualified workers or some in some profession but if we come to minimum wages and the role of the state and european union what is the future somehow of of this policy is it still uh, you see it as still current more or less than it was before and maybe before talking about the future just a few words on the status quo i mean we have uh, different minimum wage regimes as we call them uh, in, in europe in the majority of the state we have a statutory minimum wage which cover almost all workers 
And then, of course, we have more or less strongly or weaker systems of collective bargaining, which also define in collective agreement minimum wages. And if we talk a, a minute just about the statutory minimum wages, we can uh, say that uh, in international terms, they are mostly set at a very low level, a level which is even in the, in the national context, not sufficient. You can't call it a, a decent wage or even a living wage. So take Germany as an example. Uh, again, we have now an, an hourly minimum wage of nine euros 60. That's uh, that the current rate, nine euros sixty cent per hour as, as a statutory minimum wage, and of course nobody, even if you are a single living in the city, uh, you can't live with. Even if you work forty hours uh, a week and you have a full time job on this basis, you can't live with that, and you you still have the right because your monthly salary is so low. Then you still have the right to get additional payment subsidies by the state in order to make your needs. And I think this is more or less the situation in most European countries. One way how to measure is the so-called Kites Index, so where you, where you compare the minimum wage with the average or the median wage of your society. And if you take the criteria of the medium wage, uh, I mean, there is a, almost an agreement that uh, around at least 60% would be necessary to have a kind of decent wage level. And we know that almost all uh, European countries with a statutory minimum wage are sometimes far below the 60% threshold. Again, in Germany, for instance, we are only talking about 48%, but also in other countries, in Spain and, and, and many other countries, we are much below that level. And what we see uh, since uh, also before the crisis, we've seen that uh, minimum wage is becoming more and more politicized. And we see in many countries, we see movements coming from workers, but also from, from other social civil society organizations, which sometimes under the slogan of a living wage campaign, sometimes using other slogans, where, where the people say, no, we, we really want if, if it's the minimum wage, if the society is defining this is the minimum which every worker should should get for, for his or her work, then, 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 of course, this minimum should be at least sufficient for this individual worker to make it needs. That's, that's a simple idea of a decent or fair wage. And, and this is not the case. And therefore, we see in many countries a movement really for more substantial increases of the minimum wage. And in some countries, we already have some, I mean, take your own country, take Spain, you had this quite uh, significant increase of the minimum wage, I think it was in 2019, of more than 20%. It's probably still not, uh, not enough because the Spanish minimum wage was extremely low. But nevertheless, you see this movement. And we have campaigns in Germany, we have it in the Benelux, we have it in many Eastern European countries where the unions are pushing for higher minimum wage. And so we see this kind of movement in many countries. And yeah, that's maybe something now which is taken up at the European level with this initiative of the European, new initiative of the European Commission. Help me to try to debunk a myth. Yeah. Because in uh, economics is uh, often about trade-offs, and when yes. I studied economics, they always tell 
the history of a trade-off that if you want a, a higher minimum minimum wage, what you have to accept is a low, lower employment level. And I think this is the neoliberal narrative that they have sold us uh, for years, that if I look at data, it is simply not there exactly this relationship. I think that the minimum wage, introduction of minimum wage in Germany is also there. Can we actually uh, abandon this, uh, the logic of this trade-off that is logically there, but is actually uh, not really found in, rea in reality? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, unfortunately, still in most textbooks of, of uh, undergraduate study in economics, you probably find this kind of neoclassical models where you have a graph as higher the wages go up, as more unemployment you will, you will get. And or if you take this simple model of a fully competitive market, uh, of course, in theory, that, that might quite well, but we all know that, that in reality, it's not really working like that because in reality, of course, the labor market, in particular, the mayor labor market, has a lot of to do with, with power relations of the actor to sell the wages. And it's not just that the logic of the market and, and, and the logic of different productivities are, are uh, equalizing the whole thing. No, it's, it is really about, uh, about power relations, I would say. And what we see empirically, I mean, uh, there has been a dramatic shift in the minimum international minimum wage research from the 1990s already. So they also call it the new minimum wage research, which really also questioned, empirically, mainly empirically questioned these old way of thinking of if you have a higher wage, then you will more or less get the unemployment. And so the minimum wage won't help uh, the low wage earners because they probably will run danger to get unemployed. And if we look to the more recent experiences, I mean, we saw the introduction of the minimum wage in uh, the late 1990s in the UK and in Ireland. And all the studies, I mean, that everyone agrees on that, found that there were not this big, that did not have a negative impact on, on unemployment. The same is in Germany. In Germany, we introduced the statutory minimum wage in 2015. And before we introduce it, I would suggest about more than 80 to 90% of the economists uh, were saying, oh, we should not do that because this will create a big unemployment in Germany. And what we say is exactly the opposite. I mean, and, and, and now it's so clear. We had really a kind of national experience. This was not negative. And even we just came out, um, a, a new study came out by, by our foundation questioned what happened if we would go for a more substantial increase of the minimum wage because again now the same arguments often also from the same people coming again saying okay now so far it was not it does not create unemployment but if you go now for a higher minimum wage uh, and for instance the demand in germany is uh, the 12 euro which would be a significant increase from 9 euro 60 to 12 euro the 12 euro would also correspond then more or less to the 60% of the median wage in Germany. So that you again see this rule. And, but it's very clear that also this would not create this big unemployment because the, the channels, how, how, I mean, companies have so many possibilities. What, what are they doing if they are confronted with higher minimum wages? But usually what they do, first of all, they will try to increase prices 
They may use the productivity. I mean, the productivity of the brokers is usually much better. Yeah, and sometimes also they had to accept losses in their profits. So that's, but that's then losses they can uh, afford. So there are many different channels how this uh, minimum wage uh, is working in, in practice so that this simple model of having higher wages and higher unemployment is simply not true. And we see it empirically again also in Spain, I remember, I mean, what was predicted with this 20% increase? I mean, I, I remember even big studies from the Spanish Central Bank saying, oh, well, this will be a great big uh, employment losses. And it does not. What I think is that in the political discourse also of the European Commission, if you look to the justification of this new proposal, uh, which we might talk a little bit later on, but uh, the, the justification is exactly that. I mean, they're saying if you look to the overall economic effects, minimum wage have a positive function in uh, stabilizing the income, Uh, reducing income inequality and also stabilizing private demand. And in that sense, it has a very important function in a more sustainable economic uh, development. And we need this kind of institution because the market itself always creating more inequality. And so if you want to have a more equal and a more inclusive, that's I think the term used uh, in the debate, more inclusive way of of economic development, we need strong institution which can guarantee this inclusiveness. And I think decent minimum wages are one of these major institutions. And actually, it is a matter that this European Commission has decided to tackle. Uh, they came up not long ago uh, with a proposal for a, a European minimum uh, wage system. Now, that is not right. exactly an harmonization, of course, but is a step towards uh, improving on, uh, on on living standards. I would I, I would say across Europe. Yeah. My question is uh, maybe two questions. You know, why this should be a European matter? Why do you see the relevance of Europe to step in in such a topic that is usually uh, you know nation national? Uh, what is the European angle that you see that you see prominent? Uh, and then what do you really see as the concrete relevant aspect of the proposal that you would really think would be beneficial for European workers? I mean, first question, why you're, why we should go for a European approach? I mean, I just mentioned that there are many, in many European countries, we have national initiatives. So it's not just that Brussels is taking something which has nothing to do with what's happened at national level, but it's also against the background of this national policy. So I think it more uh, as a way of also linking uh, this national development at the European level. And yeah, and then simply saying, I mean, we are living in an uh, integrated European economy and it of course makes sense to have to, to, to create common rules, common ground that we also do not see that we do not want to, to, to compete at the cost of labor, at, at the cost of employment condition, but we want to have to, we need to step uh, uh, certain common rules. And therefore, I think it makes sense to have a European approach, which is not that Europe is defining the standards, but, but it's uh, more about Europe. It's coordinating also this national national uh, initiative in to bring it uh, into a progressive direction i think that's that's more the the core of this uh, 
proposal. And uh, I mean, it's interesting to see if you remember during the last crisis, uh, the, the big financial and euro crisis from 2009 on. I mean, there, there, there we still saw this old approach, also was very much supported by the European Commission saying, okay, we now have a crisis, so we need more flexible labor market. We, 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 we need to bring down collective bargaining. We, sometimes even we need to decrease minimum wages and so on. And now we really see, at, at least in that sense, really a shift that they're saying, no, it's good to have, especially in a crisis situation, it's good to have strong labor market institutions which stabilize also uh, income, which is necessary for more stable economic development. Coming more in detail to this initiative, so what is the sense of this initiative? I mean, we all know these nice phrases, for instance, it's in the European pillar of social rights saying, everyone should have a decent wage. I mean, this is a very old demand. You, you already find it in the, in the UN Declaration of Human Rights, or you find it in the social, European Social Charta from the 1960s. And so everywhere you have these, everyone should have the right to a decent wage uh, where he or she could live from. So, and this is nice talk, but we never saw really uh, an intent really to put this in practice, into practice. But what we discussed some minutes ago, that if you look to actually to the minimum wage levels in Europe, there are of course very different in absolutely terms, which has to do with the different wage levels we see among the European countries. But they are also, if you look at in a national context, they are often not sufficient really in, in terms of being decent uh, living wage and so on. And I think the basic idea is of this European initiative is not to have a single harmonized uh, minimum wage in Europe. You, you still have so big differences in the national wage, wage structures um, between the Nordics, the South, East and West countries. So that would be a really an artificial talk. But what is the sense of this European minimum wage initiative? First of all, is to say, we want to make sure that the regulation in every country is sufficient and really guaranteeing a decent minimum wage. And of course, what that means in practice, how high, what the level would be, it still depends on the national system. But one indicator you might use and give you an orientation could be this so-called Kites Index, which we discussed before. So that let's say, for instance, 60% of the median wage could be at least one orientation. If we would have 60% of the median wage, the minimum wage level in every country increase to 60% of the median wage, this would improve the low wages, the wage levels for more than 25 million workers in Europe. That's what's judged by the European Commission. That's what, what, what's calculated by them. So these are the official figures. And so even this increase, every increase every minimum wage in Europe to at least 60% of the medium wage would improve wages for 25 million workers. It's around 18% of the working population in the EU. So it would have an enormous impact. And that probably won't solve all the problems, but it would be an enormous step forward, I would say, in, to, to guarantee more decent and fair wages in Europe. But 
here it comes to political difficulty right. around this domain because yes. despite, the, despite the fact that we have a policy you have the role of, of making the bad questions but that's fine <laughs> I, I have to make the bad questions yeah. well this is not bad questions but it's yeah. like uh, it's, no, it's we look at we look we look at the, at, at the state of the art and uh, at politics because right. uh, okay. so, sometimes even if you have a, a nice policy yeah. proposal is the balance of power that then uh, makes it uh, a reality or not. And despite having in our hands the possibility of yeah. a policy proposal, that, uh, as you said, and as the commissioner said, has the possibility of increasing uh, life standards for 25 million of European workers, right. we still have political frictions. And let's be, let's be clear, it's also political frictions within the progressive fields. Sometimes... Yes between some progressive parties or progressive governments, sometimes even uh, unions don't agree there. So uh, I know that you are not more of an economist than political scientist. You can still comment on what you think that, you, that will happen in the end and actually how we could find the appeal uh, to move besides the strictly narrowly defined national uh, national or right. category uh, interest and look a little yeah. bit beyond. Yeah. By the way, I also have a political science background, so I can say something about this as well. You're absolutely right. There are a lot of resistances against this proposal. And I would say it's really an open situation at the moment, but it isn't open. So you can't say what in the end will be better. But maybe if I try to map the field, maybe you have a kind of four dimensions of conflict. First of all, there's, of course, the classical labor capital conflict. So if you look to the uh, resolutions of Business Europe and, and all, also the most of the National Employers Association, they made very clear that they are not happy with that proposal. So they don't want to have that. And I would say that also show in a certain way the importance of this initiative because I mean, if you look to the history of European integration in the last 20 or 30 years or so, it was mainly about market creating. So it was mainly about liberalization. And in the end, it produced an enormous shift in power relations in favor of capital from labor to capital. And I think in particular, this proposal, and I think that's something which also showing uh, its importance is that this particular proposal really tried to shift again power relations a little bit, a little bit in favor of labor. And that's the reason why also most of the employers association are very much against it. So this is a one conflict dimension. A second conflict dimension, and, and here it becomes even more complicated, is about uh, different national systems of wage setting in Europe. And we see this little bit paradoxically idea that especially from the from some of the Nordic states, not all, but it, it's especially Sweden and Denmark with the social democratic led governments, which are very much against this uh, proposal. And uh, even the trade unions in these uh, countries are against uh, this proposal because they say we have they have a system, a wage setting system without a statutory minimum wage, but with very strong collective bargaining system, so where uh, almost everyone is uh, covered by collective agreements. And they are now afraid that with this uh, rule from Europe, they, the employers might question their strong bargaining system. 
So my judgment is that it's, uh, I, I talk a lot and had a lot of discussion with Nordic colleagues. And uh, I was, to be honest, I was not convinced by, by these strong fears. But nevertheless, because I mean, the, 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 the commission proposal made very clear. It was, it is a, by the way, it's a proposal not only for statutory minimum wages, but also for the strengthening of collective bargaining. That's, that's both things together. I think uh, are very important, and they also made sure made said even in the first paragraph they say we don't do not want to to make to get any changes in well functioning uh, wage setting systems as we as we have it in the Nordic states. So they say it very explicitly. So I think that these fears are maybe a little bit overdone. And it, uh, if you if you look to the constellation in the in the European Council, it, you find the strange strange uh, situation that you have an, a political alliance of more neoliberal governments, like you have it, for instance, in Austria or the Netherlands, with right wing populists, as you have it in Hungary and Poland, and social democrats in the Nordic state. And this is, of course, political, very strange alliance. But this alliance is doing now, doing a lot of lobbying against the proposal. And of course, it's it, the big question who are the defenders of this uh, proposal in the Council? And uh, here we see that, of course, it's a more leftist government, like in Spain or Portugal or so, and also even Italy is, uh, is strongly supporting it. And the big question would be, what's, what's about France and Germany? Because they have the, the, the largest proportion in the vote in the EU Council. And here we see that probably France is uh, so far very much in favor uh, of this proposal. And there is also a hope that in the first half of 20, uh, 2022, France will get the EU presidency and that Macron probably will take this as an issue for him to, to, to promote this directive. And then the, the other big question is, of course, Germany. And so far, the German government is split. At the moment, we have a conservative social democrat-led coalition, and the conservative wing is more or less yeah, skeptical about it. And the social democratic wing is in favor. And uh, so we will see the, what the outcome of the election in, in the end of September will be. But if there will be a more progressive government uh, in Germany, I think there is a, a, a very big chance that they were really supporting this issue, uh, this directive as well, because it also fits very fine to the national debate where the social democratic and other leftist parties are now pushing for a much higher minimum wage in Germany. And they sometimes using the same arguments as you have it in the EU uh, Commission. So in this constellation, I would say there is a chance. I, I can't see the future, of course. I have no special task in that, but I think there is a real chance. And uh, the same we find in the European Parliament. So there seems to be a quite a, a big coalition among even their progress, more progressive uh, conservatives and uh, the, the leftist party that you will get a majority. But again, also there it's, uh, it's, it's, it's contested. And the la uh, maybe I forget, the, the last contract dimension is a legal one. There is, of course, a strong also critique saying, does the EU even have the competence? I mean, here I have two answers. First, my first answer, uh, was that uh, the EU had no problem during the last crisis? The EU had no problem at all to intervene in wage policy of countries. 
even if they do not have a competence or not. So they found their way to do this. Yeah? So we say also the legal question is always a political question and, uh, and, and a struggle question. But even uh, in the, if you take the more specific, the current legal debate, I mean, it's not so clear at all. I mean, we have now a big expertise of the Council of, uh, no, of what's called, it's, it's the, the, the legal experts of the, of the EU Council. And they made a big expertise on the proposal of the, of the of the commission, and they more or less came to the result. Yes, of course, the EU has no competence to define a certain uh, value for minimum wage. Let's say that so the EU could not say we we have ten euros all over Europe, but what they can do is, of course, because they have the competence to to guarantee fair working conditions and. Of course, wages are a major part of working conditions. They can establish certain principles of fair wages. That's at least was a, the result of the EU Council. So you, again, here you see, again, it's also very much contested, but there are also strong arguments in favor. So to sum up, I think there is a really chance that we can get it, but of course there is no guarantee and very much depends on the coming months and the struggles going on on this issue. Professor Schutt, and that was a, a great account of the political uh, difficulties uh, that, that are facing this uh, this hot potato. I would uh, yeah. I would say uh, thanks a lot for putting it out uh, clear clear for us. We understand there is also <laughs> depends on the on the upcoming political de development. So let's yeah. hope that first. Germany uh, moves uh, in a progressive direction, and also France feels uh, that progressive and uh, a progressive agenda is the way to go. Uh, thanks a lot. I hope that we will be able to invite you once this become uh, European, European. You once this become <laughs> European law, uh, and we have twenty five millions of workers with a better, right. with a better, with a better wages. Thanks a lot, Professor Schutten. Uh, talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned. <laughs>